We are continuing what we stopped already a while ago, right before the Chagim was our last Shi'ul in Agadita. And we were making our way through the various sugyot in Masechet Berachot. And we were smack in the middle of a piece. I'm refreshing your memory. So for those of you listening to this on YouTube or podcast, it'll feel like you heard yesterday's class yesterday. And today's class, you don't realize, is months later. We are... In the middle of a piece of Harav Kuk, Alav Shalom, in his book Enaya. Enaya is a commentary on the Agadot of Masechet Berachot and Masechet Shabbat. And in there, Harav Kuk is laying out for us what is the philosophical difference or the theological ramification of the famous Machloket here in the Gemara. We want to know, are there three Mishmarot in the night? Are there three watches in the night? Or are there four watches in the night? And Harav Kuk says, who cares? Okay, there's three, there's four. What difference does it make? And in order for Harav Kuk to explain this to us, he has to explain to us there are four ways in Avodat Hashem. So if you have the PDF in front of you, you don't have to look at it, don't, don't get stuck. In the Google Classroom, there's Enaya Berachot, there's a text. We're in the fifth piece of the Enaya. And Harav Kuk mentioned so far that step one of Limut Torah is Shlemut Avodah Befoan. Simply, to fulfill HaKadosh Baruch Hu's will. HaKadosh Baruch Hu said, keep Shabbat, keep Shabbat. HaKadosh Baruch Hu said, eat kasher, you eat kasher. HaKadosh Baruch Hu said, ha-kamocha, you do that. That's, HaKadosh Baruch Hu told you what to do. The first step in being a servant of HaKadosh Baruch Hu is to listen to HaKadosh Baruch Hu. But have on uh, Zoom, you can hear me well? Can I hear somebody just to make sure I hear you? Yes, you can hear us really well. Thank you, Marlene. How do you know if I hear you very well? So, um, in, the, in the regular uh, uh, Gemara, uh, are we, we left off at, at page 3A. Are we still there? We're still there. Okay, good. Thank you. So the first step of being a servant of HaKadosh Baruch Hu is one, to serve HaKadosh Baruch Hu. That's quite simple. The second, says Rav Kook, Hushlemut hamidot nalechet bidrachavit barach. It's not just to perfect the observance of mitzvot, technically, but it's to perfect your avodat Hashem, your service of HaKadosh Baruch Hu, in which way? In perfecting your character traits. In English, we would say to be a good person. How is that part of avodat Hashem? How is that part of... Come, come, come. How is that part of serving HaKadosh Baruch Hu? Shamu Chazal, because our rabbis say... Chasidut gedolam mikulam. That chasidut is the greatest character trait. What is chasidut? What is piety? People will tell you today chasidut is going to the mikveh three times a day, or chasidut is tying a shoelace around your waist when you pray, or chasidut is putting a dead fox on your head on Shabbat, or something. People have different ideas. What is chasidut? Chasidut. What does it mean chasidut? Says Rav Kook. The Rachamim already told us. That etzem chasidut nigzar mechesed. The root, every Hebrew word has a root, three letters. The root of chasidut is chesed, kindness. In order to be a chasid, what is chasidut and how that connects to chesed, you have to go read the book of the chasid. Who is the chasid? And that's exactly where we ended off before the chagim. We took a brief tangent 
into the writings of the Ramchal. And I told you, you know what? This requires serious study, and I can't do it in one class. Let's take a break, and when we get back, I didn't know it was going to be so long. But when we get back, it will be in the writings of Rabbi Moshe Chaim Lutato. And that is exactly the last connection, on the, the last link that you have on the Google Classroom. If you want to find this on your own, it's very simple. You want to go to safaria.com or .org, I don't remember which one it is. You want to find the book, Misilati Sharim. It's easy. If you have Google Classroom, just click the link. And you want to find yourself in chapter 19 of Misilati Sharim. I'll reread a little bit from where we left off last time. Uh, but really, today's shiur is primarily going to be focused on uh, Misilati Sharim. Now, for those of you who haven't learned Misilati Sharim before, you always have time to do Teshuvah and start now. Uh, Misilati Sharim is a tremendous book in the service of HaKadosh Baruch Hu. There are, in fact, two versions of Misilati Sharim. There's the one that is most commonly studied. That's the one I'll be reading to you from today. And there's a manuscript form of Misilati Sharim that was printed only fairly recently. I have a copy of a Hebrew-English version of that as well. You can buy it in Hebrew also. And essentially, Rabbi Moshe Chaim Lutzato was a proficient author. Aside from being a chassid at a very young age, and I've spoken to you in the past about his life and how much he suffered at the hands of other chachamim who literally made his life miserable. He died at a very, very young age. It could be even before the age of 40, maybe 39, I remember, uh, Ramchal died. And I would tell you, don't say that Ramchal died. Say that he was murdered. By who? By all the chachamim in his generation who made his life miserable. Pashut. You read the way they treated him, what they did to him, they burned his books, they took his manuscripts, handwriting, only he had copies of those books, and they forced him to hand it over to the Betadin and burn those books. People didn't like that a 15-year-old was telling them that he was speaking with angels and that he was learning Torah from all kinds of people and had a group of Tamilei uh, Chamim that learned with him. So I, I can't fix the problems of history. It didn't happen so long after the Ramchal that already he became accepted in the Jewish community, but he didn't merit to live to see that day. Ramchal, in his youth, as a poor man, did all kinds of things to make a living. One of his most famous methods of parnasah, there are many chachamim who did this, by the way. Uh, I'm thinking of another commentary in En Yaakov. His name is Rabbi Yehuda Leon de Modena. Have you heard of him? Rabbi Ariyeh de Modena, you might know him as. He is a famous chacham, was one of the most famous um, authors of a work that tried to prove that Kabbalah, that the Kabbalists have, is not authentic. He was adamant that Zohar is a forgery, and that the, what he called Chochmah Kabbalah was one of the most evil things to happen to Judaism. He was a famous Italian Chacham in his generation. He also worked in the same profession. What do you do when you're very good at writing, and you're good in Hebrew, and you know how to write poetry? How do you make a living? You write tombstones. Tombstones? Yeah, that used to be a profession. The guy who writes the words on the tomb. The Matzeva, that's what he did. And so Rabbi Meshachim Lutzato, for very often, he would get hired to write uh, tombstones. Lutzato, L-U-Z-Z-A-T-O, T-T-O, I don't know what to tell you. Rabbi Meshachim Lutzato didn't just write books in the normal fashion. He was also a beautiful author of plays, you know, uh, in Hebrew, playwrights you have uh, famous plays. Think of, I don't know, Shakespeare, think of Havdin. For his friends' weddings, would often gift them a play that they could perform at the wedding. 
And these plays were not regular plays like you and I think of a play, you know. Enter, I don't know, Jennifer, go out, Isaac, you know, they're not that kind of play. Though some of them were very graphic, very much so. Uh, definitely contain elements of romance and, and intimacy and those kind of things like many chamez But all of them, all of them are intended to teach you very deep life lessons, whether wisdom of life in general or life lessons about emunah, about HaKadosh Baruch about Nishamot, I own a few copies of different plays of the Ramchal, none of which have been reprinted in our generation. In fact, one of the rabbis of this generation said that the Ramchal did Teshuvah after he wrote all those plays, that's why we don't have to print them. The Chutzpah, the censor of the Ramchal, so many years after he died, is still something that I can't handle. But anyone who has a chance to sit and to study, there's even one that was translated into English. If you go to hebrewbooks.org and you type in I don't know what you would write. Um, Benita, are you next to my desk? I have it home. I can tell you the name. Sing righteousness, praise righteousness. I'll get you a copy in a PDF form. You, you, could, read, you could read the Ramchal. It's a beautiful poem. It was translated almost 100 years ago in New York. Why am I telling you all of this? Because it seems that the original version of Mislat Sharim was written also as a play. What do you mean a play? A conversation between a chacham and a chassid, a wise man and a pious man, both Jewish, but both belonging to very different Jewish camps. One, a camp of intellectual Talmudic halachic scholars, and one to a group of pious, they might call them in English, pietists, chassidim. No, not chassidim as we know them. This is pre the dead, the dead foxes. This is... Original, not original Hasidim, but a group of people that would be identified as Hasidim. And the whole Misilat Sharim is a conversation between the Chacham and the Hasid, who are childhood friends, but who later on in their journey of Torah split off paths. And these two rabbis are sitting and conversing, and they essentially have an entire book of Misilat Sharim. And in the handwritten manuscript, we seem to find that the Misilat Sharim that everyone studies today is a taktsir, it's a summary of the original Misrati Sharim, there was a conversation between the Chacham and the Chassid. And you can buy today, even in English, there's no excuse anymore. It's this edition, for example, printed by, I don't know who they are, Ofek Institute in Ohio, of all places. And they have printed the first half of the book is what they call Seder uh, Vikuach, or in English they call it the, one is uh, thematic and one is schematic, or something like that. And the second is Seder Prakim, which is the traditional Misrati Sharim that we have in front of us. Because that's the one that's available online. Uh, is that what you have, Marlene? Yeah, that looks like it. Though mine is green. It says it's a complete Misrati Sharim. Correct. In two versions, dialogue and thematic, right? Yeah. Okay, so this is a, it's an important work. Rabbi Dweck in the United Kingdom right now is giving a series on the introduction of the original Misrati Sharim. And I haven't had a chance to listen to it yet. Uh, but I heard that it's very impressive, and I would recommend a person take the time, even just to read the introduction of that book. Gonna, let's not do plastic bags. You want to open them? Go go outside, open them, and come back. <laughs> That's the difference between being in a small room and a big room. <laughs> All right. Let's read together, Ms. Hatishalim. I'll review the first part briefly. Thank you, Phil. If you click on 19, section 1, Let's explain the various elements that exist in Chassidut. 
when you learn about Hasidut in the writings of the Balei Musam, you wonder how you could live in a generation where somebody is born, and they're born calling themselves a Hasid. I'm a Hasid. How are you born a Hasid? You're barely born Jewish. How can you be born a Hasid? Hasidut takes years and years and years of work. They once asked Rav Shach, well, I'm not a student of, but I heard a nice uh, devout Torah in his name. And they asked him, why does it say in the tefillah in the morning, You didn't create me a non-Jew. Why be so negative? Just say, You made me Jewish. Why do you have to be so negative? And he answered them and said, You think that you were born Jewish. You weren't born Jewish. You were born not a non-Jew. But to be Jewish, that's your whole life you have to work to be Jewish. You're always born Jewish. You don't just get to be born and decide that you're Jewish. And somebody who works hard to be Jewish whether they were born Jewish or not, can ultimately become Jewish, right? That's what our religion believes. And because of that, the same thing with a Hasid. How can you be born a Hasid? Someone shouldn't be allowed to use the title of a Hasid, or I am a Hasid, or I practice Hasidut, unless they truly are a pious person. Now let's read about it. There are three elements of Hasidut. The first one is an action. So the way in which you, the, the mitzvot, the actions that you do, that's one step of Hasidut. The way in which you take actions. So it's not just that you do mitzvot, it's how you do them. And The third one is in the way in which you intend, the kavanot that you have, the things you think about when you are doing mitzvot. And the first part of actions, actions that you take to make you a chasid, are split up into two separate parts. So now you have three things. And the first one is made up of two parts. Don't get confused, because we're not going to spread ourselves so thin. One part of actions in Hasidut are the mitzvot that directly relate between you and the creator of the universe. And the second one, between you and other people. Your relationships with other people. So there are two elements of Hasidut in action. And those are actions between you and Boyonam, and actions between you and other people. You accept this premise so far? Yes? The mitzvot separate between those between you and HaKadosh Baruch and those that are interpersonal. Let's look at the next paragraph. You, find, you know where I'm at in the Mishnah Yes? Yes? So I'm looking at the book, chapter 19. Let me see what you're showing. And what page is that on? I'm on page 186. Is that right? Yeah, but you're in the wrong section of the book. Go to the back side of the book. In my book, you're going to be in chapter 19, which is on page... 572. Do you have that in your book? And it could be you have a different edition than mine. Yeah, it's a different edition. Okay. But look for chapter 19. That's what you're looking for. Yeah, it's a very long chapter here. That's right. We're starting at the beginning. Okay, thank okay. you. Sorry. No problem. So the first part of the first part, meaning the actions that have to do with HaKadosh Baruch Hu. Between us and Borei and that is to observe all of the mitzvot as much as possible with all of the details possible. 
ואלה הם שכראום חכמינו זיכרונם לברכה, שיערי מצווה. And this is exactly what our rabbis refer to as the extra elements of a mitzvah. ואמרו, and they say in מסכת סוכה, שיערי מצווה מעכבים את הפורענות. That these elements of the mitzvot, they can even hold back any negative things that will happen to the world. כי אף על פי שגוף המצווה נשלם זולתם, הוא כבר יצא בזה ידי חובתו, even though observing a mitzvah properly without all the extra elements and frills, you fulfilled your obligation. That's only true for regular Jews. But pious people, they don't have a choice, and they have to, when observing mitzvot, do it at the highest level possible, with all of the details and all of the frills possible. Now we are very familiar with this type of chassid. It's the chassid who's extra careful about Shabbat. They're extra careful about kashrut. They're extra careful, and they tell you, we do this, we do that, and I have to remind you, what did Rabbeinu Avraham ben HaRambam tell us in the beginning of his book, Hamaspik Lovda Hashem, the guide to serving God? What did Rabbeinu Avraham tell us about Hasidut? Very good. Judaism is not a democracy. I have a shoe like that on YouTube. Judaism is not a democracy. You are not allowed to be a Hasid until you first follow all the 630 mitzvot. You can't be strict about Kashrut if you still speak Lashon Hara. What happens if you do? What if you decide, you know what, I speak Lashon Hara, I'm not a nice person, but I want to keep extra kosher. What happens to the mitzvah that you do? It's null and void. As our Chachamim would say, Your reward that you thought you got, you lost it somewhere else. So what did you gain? Says Rabbeinu You want to wear sackcloth, uncomfortable clothing, to be pious and connect to Kadosh Baruch but you don't wear tzitzit. So what does it help? You're not wearing tzitzit on your clothing. So what does it help that you wore a very uncomfortable clothing to, I don't know, mourn the destruction of the Bet Dash? You can't do extra things until you do what you're told first. And we live in a generation where everybody's doing extra and nobody's doing what they're told. Everybody wants to study today Kabbalah, yeah? But nobody wants to study the Chumash. Yeah, I don't know, before you start jumping in the deep end of, I don't know where you're, you're, you're floating. A person, everybody wants to be extra strict. Do I open cans on Shabbat? Do I open bottles on Shabbat? Do I rip toilet paper on Shabbat? For God's sake, you don't even know anything about halakha in the first place. What are you busy with yourself with all of these details? A person has to know that first, before I can be a chassid, I have to be what uh, Rabbeinu Avam and Rabbam calls, there's derech ha'am, there's the way of the people, and there's a derech ha'vichidim. Individuals can go on a certain path, but only an individual. And in the older generation, not today, today you don't have such people. In the older generation, if you tried to do something that was chassidut before you were supposed to, one of the zikre ha'edah, one of the older people would come and hit you on the head. They would tell you, what are you busy doing this? You don't have the right to do this. Rabbi Yosef Masas writes that in Morocco, if you would uh, cover your head with a talit, and only Tamil Khamin did that in the Tevina, they would come and rip your talit off your head in the Berakhanesset. What are you doing in the Berakhanesset? Who do you think you are? Because just like you have those people, oh, I don't go to a wedding that has mixed dancing. I heard, I understand. What about the other way around? Do you go to a wedding where people think they're more religious than everybody else? In that case, you should also not go to that wedding. Where are the enforcers, the people who are too fanatically religious? We don't have them. So essentially the enforcers are not really enforcers. They're not doing their job properly. And that leads me to the real second part of Hasidut. Notice how much the Ramchal spends, an entire paragraph, 
on chasidut between us and HaKadosh Baruch Hu. And now it's over. He's not talking about it anymore. Now he's going to speak about the second element of chasidut, which just by how much he speaks about it should tell you two things. One, that it's very important. And two, that he has to prove his point because nobody believes this to be true. So let's look at the second part here. The second division of the first part of Chasidut. This all relates between us and other people. You all know where I am? Yes? And what is the definition of chasidut, its essence? Is that people should always do kindly to other people and not do anything to harm other people. So there's, a few, there's two levels here, really. What does David Amalek tell us? Sur mera, leave evil, v'asetov. If you don't want to do good for people, at the very least, don't do bad to them. Don't, don't do bad. Some people in the world, I wish you could just tell them, you don't have to do anything nice for me. Just don't do anything bad to me. I'm not asking you to do anything kind. You just don't have to indulge in being so negative. But there are some people that's difficult for them. For some people, their whole avodat Hashem is sur mera, because their whole life they're stuck in ra. To do good, that's already, that's piety. Now, you have to do both to be a chassid. You have to stop doing bad, but that's not enough to stop doing bad. You also have to do good. Who? To everybody. And this breaks down to three different categories. There are three different categories, and that is with your body, with your money, and with your soul. Baguf, how does it work doing chesed with your body? Give me an example of chesed you can do with your body. Bringing a, a, a cooked meal to somebody who's ill. Okay, that's a good example. Just visiting them is already an action with your body, but also bringing them food. Says the Ramchal, To help every single person with whatever you can. And what does it mean whatever you can? Everybody can do something different. If you don't know how to cook, so please don't bring meals to people because you might make them more sick than they were when they first came. When Elchanan was born, so we had the people, oh, they had a baby, let's do a meal train, bring them food. Listen, I don't know what... I used to see people miserable in the bed of Knesset. I never knew why. And then they started bringing me the food that they eat. And then I realized, now I know why you're miserable. If you eat that, then that's considered food for you. So why do the next time around, I said, please, my, between my mother and my wife and my family, I don't need anybody to help me with food. You just keep it at home. And when I went to Yeshiva, the same experience. I went to Baltimore to Yeshiva. And I figured, listen, Yeshiva is not going to be gourmet food. But how bad can it possibly be? How bad could it possibly be was the question. Came to the Yeshiva, the first nights we were there, and they served meatloaf. Now, I don't know if you know what meatloaf is. But I never in my life saw a meatloaf before. So for those, I'll tell you, essentially somebody didn't know what to do with ground beef. They didn't know how to roll it into a kebab. They didn't know how to fry it in a pan. They didn't know to... So they took it all and they put it in like in a loaf pan with no flavor. And then when they serve it, they cover it with ketchup and serve it in slices on a plate. Now, I'm not sure even that would be fair to feed to your animals. But let alone to feed it to somebody in a yeshiva. It's an uncomfortable thing. But everybody in their own type of food. 
I can't tell you what's the right thing to eat and what's the wrong thing to eat. And no offense to anybody who makes meatloaf better than my yeshiva, okay? I, I, can, I can agree that there are probably people who would know how to actually make a meatloaf, but I never saw it yet. Part of doing chesed to other people with your body is to make their life easier. Now we're talking physically. So to make their life easier physically. That's exactly what we're taught in Masechet Avot. We always translate this that you should carry the burden with your friend. And people always, especially in America of 2021, uh, people are always talking, are we still in 2020? Yeah. They're always talking about being there for people and supporting people and allying with people. And that might be true, but that's not what Chachamim are talking about. It's something that happens all the time. Recently I was at Costco and there was a lady pushing a cart and something fell off her cart and she was having a hard time picking it back up. Literally the definition, go and help this person pick it up and put it back in their cart. This is a, an actual thing you can do with your body. If you see something about to happen to your friend, any kind of damage, physical damage, and you are able to stop it or to get rid of it in any way, you should go out of your way in order to make that happen. Now really, you should do that all the time, no? You should, it should be a chassid, shouldn't be doing that. A chassid shouldn't have to, to be the special person who helps other people. Here we're talking about situations where you're clearly not obligated to help. It's not your problem. That attitude of it's not your problem, that's a, that's a major problem. Recently we had here, I told my wife the story, now I'm forgetting the details. There was a crime that happened here, not, not the famous one you know about in New York. A crime happened here. And the police got footage from every single angle on everybody's iPhones that were filming them, but nobody stepped in to help. So there was enough evidence to put people away, but nobody managed to actually do anything. That's not my problem. American law leads to that type of behavior. Because sometimes if you get involved to help somebody else, thank you, Yitzchak, if you get involved to help somebody else, what ends up happening? You could be liable for all kinds of things because you went to, there's a famous professor that saved his student from choking. He did the Heimlich maneuver, she was choking on a pretzel, and then he was sued for sexual harassment. Because that's the world that you and I live in. And even, even if you can decide that somebody is not criminally responsible in the United States of America, but in civil, in civil law, they could sue you for all they want. There's a case here in the United States. A man, I've shared this with you before, but it's important to review People who live in the West, they think that somehow the Torah is primitive and old-fashioned and old-school. But uh, we live in the, in the world of freedom and liberty and justice for all. When you have the mailman come to your house or the Amazon delivery worker shows up to your doorstep and they find, sometimes it could happen, your kid will leave a scooter in the front yard and they'll trip over your scooter, they can sue you, correct? Why can they sue you? But it's your house. You can put your scooter everywhere. But it's not the public. It's your front yard. American law requires that you must provide safe working conditions for people that are coming to work on your property. And part of that is delivering a package to your house. And so you could be held responsible. So many of you hopefully have some type of insurance in your home, an umbrella liability of sorts, that if this would happen, you'd be covered in certain instances. So this man broke into somebody's house. What happened was that he was climbing into their house and he fell through the skylight and landed with his back on the countertop full of dirty dishes and broke his back. And he was arrested 
just put into prison for breaking and entering someone's house. But not without filing, not a criminal suit, a civil suit against this person and saying, listen, you owe me X amount of money in damages. How do I owe you money in damages? My profession is I'm a burglar. And you didn't provide me with safe working conditions. This man lost his house because he couldn't pay all the money that he owed. And the other guy was able to buy a house. Who knows? Maybe even the guy's house with that money. There was a situation, maybe it was in California, self-defense. There was a, a person who tried to kill someone in their home and kill their family. And the homeowner shot the intruder. Shot and killed them. And they went to criminal court. And they came out after $400,000 of defense fees. They came out that they were innocent. They criminally didn't, they were saving their life, self-defense, they were completely justified. But what happens? In America, once a criminal suit is closed, you can open a civil suit. They open a civil suit. Who opened a civil suit? The ex-wife of the intruder who came to kill the family. Why the ex-wife? Because she has a child with the guy. And he's 12 or 14. He has many more years until he turns 18 to get child support. And she claims that by killing my ex-husband, you are now robbing me and my child of money that we live off of. You caused damage to me by killing him. And what happened? Civil suit. They agreed that that's correct. Criminally, nobody saw it, But civilly, that's correct. And the insurance settled out of court. They should agree to pay up front. Maybe instead of four years, they'll pay three years up front of child support now and leave the guy alone. So just in case anybody thinks that you live in a country where the laws are wonderful and they make sense and only the Torah is backwards, please don't... don't um, you see something's about to happen. We've created a culture in which it's very hard to do this. You're afraid to get involved. You're afraid to get involved because who knows what will happen to you if you do. That's a crazy world that we live in. Bimamon, with money. How do you help a person with money? You give them a loan when they need... By the way, is a loan better than, than tzedakah? Some ways it's yes. Tell me how it's better. It saves the person's pride. A person is able to take a loan quicker than they take tzedakah. I feel like, okay, if I'll pay you back, then I don't feel so bad right now. For some people, maybe not. They know they'll never have money to pay you back. So, so either which way, there's, there's pros and cons to tzedakah loans. But exactly, doing chesed with your money. When I was in yeshiva, they used to have a free loan system where, let's say you're a guy like me. Your parents send you money in the mail to eat X amount of shawarmas every month. Whatever it is that you need. And you have an extra $100 rolling around your wallet from the last few months of not eating too many shawarmas. So what do you do? The rabbi who runs the fund says, give me your $100. We loan it out to people right before the end of the month. It's a crunch time. People need to pay their bills. They're going to get paid, but they're not paid right now. They front the money to people with no interest. The people get the money back. And then when they get paid back, they give you back your $100. You didn't lose any money. But your money was used to help other people who needed money. This was some type of gemach. Uh, now, this is another way to do chesed with your money. To help people in any way that your hands can. 
ולמנוע ממנו הנזקין בכל מה שיוכל. And again, financially, to save people from loss in any way that you can. כל שכן שירחיקו כל מיני נזקין שיכולים לבוא מחמתו, especially to make sure that you don't do anything which causes other people to lose. I know somebody who once went to a glass store, you know, glass cups, glass jewelry, glass things, and he noticed there was a commotion there because there was a bird, something was flying around the store, everybody was scared of the bird, so he decided he's the hero, he's going to jump at the store and save the bird, and save the people from the bird. So he jumped in the store, he climbs on a shelf, takes the bird, da, da, da. but by the time he finished, he broke half the store, and the people said, listen, the bird did this much damage, you trying to save us from the bird, you... You also have to make sure when you do things in life not to cause damage to other people. It's to be aware of the things that are around you. Ben liyachid ben arabim, whether it's for an individual or for multiple people. V'afilu sh'ata miyad en ha'ezekan matzoyin, even though right now there's no imminent danger. Kivan she'echol lavol dekach yisirem v'yavirem, v'amru zikhonan b'vachan, the rabbis told us on Maserich Berachot, yihim amon chavecha chaviv alecha kishalach, that for your friend's money, should be as valuable to you as your own. What does that mean? Really, we should all save our friends' money from problems that are going to happen to them. So why is this person a chassid? Tell me. Correct. But halakha, and you look at Chosh Mishpat, if you see something's about to happen to somebody's money, you have an obligation to save it. So what's the chassidut here? There's a key sentence here. I'll read it to you again. Right now, there's no imminent danger. So what are you doing? You're pr- very good. You're protecting a few steps ahead. That's the kind of thing you do with your own money. With your own money, you're very careful that it shouldn't reach a place where someone... That's how protective you are of your own money. That's how you should be protective of other people's money. In halakha, you have a requirement to save money right now. You don't have a requirement to help this person put a financial plan in order to make sure. But that's your obligation. If you want to be a chassid, you do more than you have to do. And part of that means treating someone else's money just as, as important as you treat your own money. It's difficult, but it's possible. The third way, benefish. A person's soul. kol to help a person receive any type of, of satisfaction that they need. Ben whether it's for respect, Ben or in any other way. You know, people, the things that people will do for respect. Respect, I told you the other night, here in the Belakanesad, we spoke about respect and, and what people will do for respect, but it's not even real. The respect is not even real. But people, they'll give up everything they have to be treated for a few minutes with respect. You go to the hotel. I hate hotels. I bless whoever invented Airbnb. You go to the, I'm sorry if they're your neighbors, but for right now, just a, <laughs> you go to a hotel, and what happens? You come in, and they immediately greet you by your car, they take your suitcase, it depends on which hotel you go to, right? But you come in a red carpet, when's the last time you walked down a red carpet? You go to the red carpet, there's someone opens the door for you, sir, ma'am, that, they're so nice. You go to you a know, swimming pool, you can never afford even to rent a swimming pool, let alone to swim in a swimming pool. And the things they have in a gym and full time, whatever they, they have for you that makes you feel so important. Okay, that also could be. And then as soon as 11 a.m. happens the next morning, not sir, not ma'am, nobody's waiting. The only person waiting by your door is security while you're not out of there by 11.15. All that kavod that you felt so proud of, one day later, it's gone. 
okay, fine. But here, here is that. And now what else? Other things that you can help people with? Shalininim. When I used to live in the old city, in Yerushalayim, so there's an extra level of collectors that are everywhere. People collecting money for every cause in the world. They say that once by the Kota, there was a guy who came from America to Israel, and he lands and wants to go to pray at the Kota. He walks into the Kota Plaza, and he sees a guy holding a sign. And it says, please donate, blind man. Blind, he needs help with some bills. So the American guy takes out $20 from his pocket, and he puts it in the guy's cup. The guy says, thank you so much for your gener- generous donation of $20. <laughs> and he says, um, how do you know that I put $20? I thought that you're blind. He says, no, me, I'm not blind. I'm just holding the sign for my friend. He's not here today. He's blind. I'm holding his sign to collect donations for him. He says, where'd your friend go? He says, he's at the movies today. <laughs> Very good. So there's, unfortunately, an extra level of charlatans all around there collecting money. I once saw that the average person by the Kotel makes between $150 to $200 every day. They're not doing so bad. That's better than working somewhere else and flipping burgers or whatever else might happen. So the question is, do you give to these people? Do you give to the guy? Do you start checking? You ask questions. I once asked our parents. And our parents told me, listen, if you're giving out $100 bills, you can ask where things are going. You're giving out a few shekels here, a few dollars there. It's not, not the end of the world. He said, maybe you're not fulfilling the mitzvah of tzedakah. It could be. It could be you're not actually ticking the box of charity because they don't need money. But the mitzvah of chesed, there's a person, for whatever psychological need they have, to sit on a street corner and beg for money. You have to imagine how low you would have to be to go stand on a street corner and ask somebody for money. So when you give them money, you are in fact doing a chesed for them. It's not tzedakah. It could be it's not tzedakah. But you're helping them with something that they perceive they need help with. That's also a mitzvah. Maybe a different mitzvah. You can have a conversation about enabling people. And, fine, not for right now. <laughs> Anything that you know that when you do for somebody else, they feel good about what you're doing for them, it's a mitzvah of chasidut to do it for somebody else. And this could be so many, there's, it's endless what kind of things you could do for people to make them happy. You bring somebody flowers, that makes them happy for some people, that makes their whole life. You say hello to a person. You know how many people don't say hello? It used to be in California, I didn't have to tell people so much. Everybody's saying hello, how are you? And then you go to New York, nobody talks to anybody. But in California, post-COVID, people got used to not talking to each other, not saying hello to each other, not looking at each other in the face when they talk. There's a certain culture that was created to be distant from people. It's a mitzvah. You see a person. Hi, how are you? Genuinely to know who they are. You go to the store, the same store, all the time. You see the same people. How can you shop at the same place all the time and you don't know somebody's name? They sell you things. You don't know if they have kids, if they're married. If they're... I go to Costco business. For years I've been going to Costco business for the Beda Knesset. There's one guy there. I always see him. He's at a certain hour that I shop. He's there. He works there. He's a nice guy over the years. And I followed him. He, when his father got sick and his father moved in with him and his father passed away. Every one of those times that I've been there, how are you? How's your father? How can, I, can I get his name? Can we say a prayer for him? Why not? What do you lose from being a good person? It doesn't cost you anything. It doesn't cost to be nice to other people. And it's probably the easiest way with which to do chesed. It doesn't, you don't lose from it. Kol how much more so? That you shouldn't cause a person to suffer in any which way. In whichever way you can cause someone suffering. 
there's suffering that's emotional suffering. You're hurting a person in a way that's, that's not okay. Now you might ask, nobody's allowed to cause tzal to somebody else. So what's so special about this chassid? You, are you allowed to hurt other people emotionally? No. So what's so special about this chassid? It goes out of his way to... Okay, say... Very good. That's that's what you were saying the same thing. You know, I call you and I call you a name. I insult you. That's hurtful. And so, in in the world, you know not to do that. You're taught not to do that. But there are ways you can hurt somebody even indirectly. But you're causing an indirect hurt to somebody else. It could even be you don't intend to hurt, but it's causing someone else to be hurt. Of course, of course. And this is exactly what he's worried about. It's Even if it's far-fetched that I might offend this person, but to make sure that I don't. And all of this is essentially what our rabbis refer to. Everything we spoke about so far is what our rabbis call Gimelut Chasadim. And included in Gimelut Chasadim is Redifat HaShalom. It's pursuing peace. Because essentially the best thing that you could bring between people is to bring peace between people. And that's why our Chachamim talk about peace between the husband and wife, peace between two friends, peace between anybody. It requires an attempt to understand the person that has been What you're saying is very important, especially in the generation that we're in right now. There, there are certain trends in the world. I'm not getting involved in anything political overtly. When someone tells you what you're doing or what you're saying is hurting me, whether you agree or you don't agree or it fits into your worldview or it doesn't fit into your worldview, it's your philosophy, no, it doesn't, make it matter. It doesn't, doesn't matter. At the end of the day, you're causing distress, emotional distress to another person. Chasidut would require you to, to at least when speaking with that person not asking you to change anything on your end but when speaking with that person to do so in the most sensitive way possible that's something that we, we say I don't want to say it doesn't make a difference what you want or you don't want at the end of the day that's you know there's a I love the camera better not to you could all use your imaginations of all the different things in the world that we're talking about Sensitivity requires knowing a lot more than just, I don't like to be called stupid, so I don't call other people stupid. That's a very juvenile level of, of uh, thought. You mentioned culture. There are things that culturally are offensive that in our culture might not bother us. You go to a new place, you go to a new home, you have a new person that you meet. You have to be aware of their culture as well. An example, there are certain cultures which coming into their house with shoes on, could be a tremendously offensive thing. Now, they might tell you, hey, don't come to my house with shoes. You might say, hey, I don't want to take off my shoes. Well, when you're in someone's home, if you can go out of your way not to offend them, that would be the right way to do it. There are certain cultures in which saying certain words to people are appropriate or they're not appropriate. Or everyone has to know. And I, there's, no, there's no manual because you'd have to know every person and where they come from and who they are. 
And can you mess up? Of course you'll mess up. But to try. The point of a chassid is that a chassid, once they realize that there's something that needs to be done differently, that's what needs to be done. That's the way that I'm going to treat another person. Rabbi Yosef Masas is a famous derashav. And he writes at the end, and unfortunately he didn't record this part of his speech. He writes always about Pakavot, and he says, and I spoke to them about this, or I spoke to them about that, and I wish them a Shabbat Shalom. But he doesn't tell you what he said. But he writes there about the importance of treating our Arab neighbors with their Eretz. He gave a derasha about it. And his whole attitude is, listen, on a national level, maybe we're at war with each other. And that's a national issue that national institutions are fighting. There's an army, there's a Knesset, there's all kinds of people in the world that are busy involved in this conversation. But you walking down the street in the middle of the day, and you see somebody, say hello, how are you? Be a normal human being like any other normal human being would be. Because that's your obligation, to go out of your way to do good things to other people. The next section of the Ramchal is all going to be about different Gemarot. Throughout Shas, he's going to essentially scan all of Shas and tell us numerous places where Chachamim did very detailed things that you might not even think are offensive. You might even think they're problematic. But they went out of their way to do chesed to other people in very non-traditional ways. I'm thinking right now before we get to that section. Rabbeinu Abraham ben Rambam. I mentioned it this week. Somebody called me on the phone trying to think who it was. Maybe it was Rabbi Yosef. Is there any again? And we mentioned about a term. Rabbeinu Abraham called Koach HaHashpa'a. The power of influence. So you have sometimes a way to help somebody, literally helping them carry their bags up the stairs. That's a nice way to help somebody. You have an option to give somebody tzedakah. That's a great way to help somebody. You have a way to treat somebody nicely in a way that makes them happy or a way that doesn't offend them. That's a mitzvah again, beneficial. Rabbeinu Abraham says, there's a way to do chesed with your words. Imagine the following scenario. Uh, Ashira works somewhere. And somebody's trying to get a job at that place. Now, I don't know, it's the county, so I'm not sure what you're allowed to do over there. But assuming she doesn't uh, violate any rules. And uh, Yitzhak wants a job there. So Yitzhak tells Ashira, and she says, listen, here's the link for the application. Okay, that's what they would do. Here's the link for the application. But really, Ashira could do, use her koach ashma. She knows the guy who's in charge of hiring. And she says, listen, I have a friend, his name is Yitzhak, he goes to my synagogue, he's a good guy. Why don't you give him a job? Now, maybe they'll listen to Ashira, maybe they won't. Who knows how much weight she carries where she works. But she uses her influence to help do chesed for another person. There are many times that people don't want to do that because I don't want to get involved. But really, that's a free chance of chesed if there ever was one. To use your ability to influence other people. I was once in a Bera Knesset in New York. A Carolina was stolen in Bera Knesset in Muncie. There's a terrible story that happened there. I mentioned earlier, maybe on my Tuesday class in the afternoon, maybe it wasn't, the Chevra Kadisha, they call them the burial society. They call them, why do they call them the Chevra Kadisha, the holy society? Because they're not supposed to get paid. They were righteous people, that everything they did was chesed. It's chesed and emet, it's called. Everything was pure chesed. Today, I don't know what they should call them. They should call them Chevra uh, Rishaya, something, but definitely not uh, Kadisha. Holy, they're not holy people. And I'm not talking about San Diego. The Chavah Kadisha I'm thinking about. It's all about money. It's all about... Uh, it's how it is. That's what it is. <laughs> Maybe. It's called that. 
I did speak about it a few times. So now what happens? In Givad Ze'ev, in Yerushalayim, there was a family. The son, there was a big family. They had a lot of children. One of the married sons passed away. And the Chavach and the came to bury them. They wanted payment for the burial. The family only had half the amount. So what they did is they paid half the amount and they agreed to pay the rest in monthly installments for the next two years. Fine. In that two-year period, the father also passed away. They called the Chavah Khadijah to come pick him up, and they won't come. Why not? You still owe us payments on the first guy. He said, listen, we'll make another arrangement of payment. No, you still have a line of credit open on him. We're not going to bury him. That was Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. This whole family is living in a two-bedroom apartment, and the father is in the bedroom. So I'm in the Berak Knesset in Mansi on Shabbat. And the head of the Berak, I don't know if he's a rabbi, the head of the Berak Knesset, he got up, and he said, the Rebbe called before Shabbat from Yerushalayim, and he said that we don't take out the Torah to read the Torah until we fundraise all of the money they owe on both of those funerals. And that's what they did. This guy donated $1,000, this one $500. And they didn't take out the seventh Torah until everybody covered the expenses. And then they read the Torah. That person who went up, or the Rebbe who made the decision, we're not going to read the Torah until we cover all of these expenses, they may not have had all the cash in their hands, but they used their koach hashpa'ah, they used their ability to influence, to do something positive. Every person in their life can do chesed. That's what it means to be a chasid. Next week we're going to take apart dozens of examples from the Talmud, various locations of the Talmud. All of them are pieces of agarata. Most of them require us to learn them in an agadic fashion. But for right now, I wish to leave you off on this note. And that is that in your minds, you have to begin to redefine the term chasidut. When you hear chasid, you hear chasidut, you think of people that don't fit the category of chasidut at all. Because the Ramchal so far gave us one paragraph on mitzvot between us and other people. Nowhere does he mention a special kind of milk. Nowhere does he mention a special kind of shechita. Nowhere does he mention any kind of... None of those things does he mention. But about helping people, about doing chesed for people, being there for people, you're going to hear the examples. Some of them will blow your mind. That's what it means to be a chassid. And before we can understand chassidut, we cannot go back to the piece of Rav Kuk and understand what he wants until we truly understand what is chassidut as the Ramchal describes it. I'll meet you here next week at this time, at this place, uh, to, to tackle the next part of this trio together.